That's what I said. Um, I work with an organization, as as Larry mentioned, Transforming the Bay with Christ, and we're working to help catalyze a holistic gospel movement in the Bay Area. We're in 11 counties, 256 cities. We go down as far south as Soledad and King City. And Benicia, you are right almost at the top of the north end of our scope. And it was delightful a couple years ago when I got introduced to your pastor, Larry, shy, retiring, quiet. Um, Yes. We had lunch together, and literally within three minutes, I felt like I had known him my entire life. And you just need to know that he talked with such glowing love for this congregation. Um, So I'm proud of you before I even got to meet you. And we are going to dig in this morning to the story of Jeremiah. You might ask yourself, why in the world would we spend time on a story that's 2,500 years old? Well, this part of the story of Jeremiah really is about living in uncertain times. It's about how do we go through things that we didn't see coming, that have taken the rug out from underneath us and left us quite disoriented. I don't know how many of you can relate to that, but the story all of a sudden doesn't seem so out of touch and so far away. I'm going to put my reading glasses on because I am old. We're going to look at Jeremiah 42, 43, and 44 this morning, and especially after we get through the story part. Then I'm going to spend some time on reflections on what we learned from the story. And that's the part that I like the best because I really just have to trust that the Holy Spirit will land differently on everybody listening. A few points to draw out of the story, but I'm going to ask you to think about what's some of the most challenging things going on in your life right now. Just bring those to mind and hold them in your head and your heart as we go through the story And as we go through the reflections, because I think that will allow the Holy Spirit to whisper to you, here's what I want you to pay attention to, and all the rest of what she's saying, you can just leave. Uh, We start off here in Jeremiah, right before this passage that we're looking at, Jeremiah is a prophet, and he's given a choice. Uh, Prophets were not very popular people. They were people that God had assigned not to foretell the future, but to call out sin and invite God's people to repent. So when you see a prophet coming, it wasn't like you were going to open up the door and invite them in for dinner. You looked for a place to hide. People did not like prophets. And Jeremiah had this role assigned to him, and he was given a choice a couple of chapters before we come to this part of the story. For 20 years, Jeremiah had been warning the people, the way you are living, the way you are behaving, God is not pleased, and something bad is going to happen if you don't change your ways. For 20 years. So when you say we didn't see it coming, I'm sure Jeremiah would say, well, you weren't paying attention. And then at the end of 20 years, uh, Babylon comes into Jerusalem and conquers the country and takes most of the people from Israel back to Babylon. And God gives Jeremiah a choice. You can go with the Babylonians or you can stay here in Judah Actually, going with Babylonians would have made his life more comfortable staying in Jerusalem to work with the people that were left and the poor and the marginalized. That was the harder call. And Jeremiah made the choice that he would stay with the remnant that was left in Jerusalem. And so most of the people from Israel were gone in captivity. This story is on the heels of back in Joseph's day when all of Israel came down to Egypt to get out of the famine 
And they stayed there for 400 years. And as the years went by, it says there arose a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. And he began to enslave the Israelites who initially had come down on invitation and were assimilated. And then they became slaves and they languished under the brutality of the Pharaohs. And they cried out for God to send them somebody. And Moses came and Moses got them out of the land and said, I'm taking you back to the promised land. On a trip that should take five or six days, we're going to spend 40 years in the desert, but we're going to get you back there. And so they had been back in the promised land for a long time, but once again, once again, once again, the same sins emerged, the idolatry, the falling away from God. Maybe none of you here in the room can identify with that, but I sure can. I remember seven years old at Pioneer Baptist Church in Norwalk, California, watching Miss Charlene Avance put up on the flannel graph board the story of Israel coming out and getting out of slavery and then complaining immediately about, we wish we could go back to Egypt. And then God would do a miracle and they would be on God's side again. And then three days later, they'd be complaining. I remember at seven or eight years old watching those stories thinking, I do the same thing. So I want to remind all of us this morning, this isn't just Israel's story. This isn't just Jeremiah's story. This is our story. So let's keep unpacking this story a little bit. So after 20 years of Babylonian captivity, God said to them, apostasy and idolatry are the problems. You're falling away from me and you're worshiping other idols. Those are the problems. Sometimes we think if God would just tell us what the problems are, we'd fix them in our lives and we'd follow him more closely. Well, this story shows times when God was very clear with his people about what the right path was. And they chose not to follow it. Again, something I can painfully identify from time to time. And then came the fall of Jerusalem where the city that they had built, the city that was supposed to be beautiful, the city that was supposed to be their salvation was now taken away from them. And they had been warned. They could have prevented it. And they were taken out of the country that they loved so much. And then there was the captivity. And there was a small group of people that were left, the remnant. And they weren't sure what to do. The people that got pulled back to Babylon, they're terrified too. But the small group that's left, they're in their own country that's been decimated. Most of their friends and relatives have been captured and are gone. They've holed down in a little town called Bethlehem. And they're thinking, we should probably go to Egypt. Get away from all this. Because we know there's a good life down in Egypt, but we're not sure what to do. And so the story goes on to say, in the middle of this terror and fear, and disbelief, and not knowing what to do. In chapter 42, verses 2 and 3, they came to Jeremiah the prophet and asked him for guidance. They approached Jeremiah and they said, would you go and pray to God and find out what we're supposed to do and come back and tell us? Back in the Old Testament, this was a very often Uh, process that people would do. They would go to the religious leader. The religious leader would go meet with God and come back with the message. In fact, the people went on to say in the next verse or next couple of verses in verse six, that when they hear what it is God says, whether it's favorable or unfavorable, we will obey the Lord. And so Jeremiah with great confidence goes and seeks out God's face. He's gone for about 10 days because he knows the people are going to follow Whatever it is God says. And so after about 10 days, it 
says Jeremiah came back and he had a message from God. And God was clear. God said, here's what will happen if you stay in Judah. I will build you up. Doesn't seem like it now. Seems like everything has gotten torn down. But if you stay here, because God often uses a remnant to rebuild. If you stay here, I will build you up. The other thing that I will do along with that is I will be with you and I will show you compassion. This I will be with you, the word Emmanuel, is all through scripture and it really is the bedrock of every promise that God gives us. Some of you may be familiar with Andy Crouch, um, the Christian author. He's such an amazing writer. And we had him here a couple of years ago meeting with leaders in the Bay Area and he said, no matter what happens in your life, the ultimate promise is that God is with you. Not that your circumstances will change, but that God is with you. And I remember thinking, that's, that's not good enough. I want the circumstances to change, let's be honest. But that has stayed with me all the time as I have then moved on to times in my life where I would give anything for the circumstances to change, but they haven't. And after getting the shovel out and digging long enough and lamenting and wailing and getting angry and sad, I have found that it is enough. And God is saying, I will be with you and I will show you compassion. And one more thing, I will restore you to your land. In the middle of the devastation, I'm showing you that there are seeds of hope right now. There are seeds of restoration. So here's what will happen if you stay in Judah. Pretty good news, right? And then God says, I want you to know that here's what's going to happen if you disobey me and you go down to Egypt. The sword and the famine will overtake you. It's just reality. There are enemies down there that you don't know about that will kill you. And there is not as much food down there as you think. And over the years, the famine will get worse and there will not be enough for you. So you'll be at danger from your enemies and you will not have enough to eat. The other thing he says will happen is dread will follow you. I don't know how many of you have ever had an experience in your life where in the middle of the night or first thing in the morning or maybe sometime during the day you feel this welling up sense of fear and panic and dread in you. It's an awful feeling. If somebody told me if I did this, dread would follow me, I think I would say, I don't want to go because I don't want dread to follow me. God is very clear. This will be hanging over your head if you disobey me and you go to Egypt. And then God said, just in case I'm not clear, here's the final thing that will happen. You will die. So when you put those two lists together, it's pretty clear what the choice should be and what will happen if you disobey. And so, as you can imagine, because they said favorable or unfavorable, we will follow God. No, you know what's coming. They called Jeremiah a liar. And in chapter 43, in verse 4, the head of the army, Johanan, and the officers and the people following him disobeyed the Lord's command. They absolutely disobeyed. And then in chapter 44, verse 12, here's what happened. Here's what God said would happen because of that choice. I will take away the remnant of Judah who were determined to go to uh, to Egypt. They will all perish. I love this part of the passage. God knew that they already had their minds made up. That when they asked Jeremiah to go get a word from the Lord and when they heard a word from the Lord, there was a duplicity in them. 
They were never really intending on obeying. Ever prayed to God for something when you kind of already had your mind made up what you were going to do? Yeah, me neither. Yeah, me neither. No, no. And then there's a fascinating passage. I didn't put these verses in here, but when they're told that it is not going to go well with them and that God is mad because they have burnt incense to other gods, the husbands start blaming the wives. They're the ones that did it. And the wives start blaming the husbands. And all of a sudden, this starts to sound like the Garden of Eden all over again. Or in Peter, uh, in, in actually in the book of John, when the story of Peter is told, and Peter said, no, I will never deny you, never deny you, never deny you. I never knew him, I never knew him, I never knew him. These stories are not only our stories, they're the stories of what does it mean to be human. So we're going to spend the rest of the time now, now that we know the story, taking a look at some of the implications that we need to spend some time reflecting on. And the first one is this, that the work that God called Jeremiah to took a deep toll on him. There's other prophets, Isaiah, Habakkuk, Micah, Nahum, go on, Amos. Um, They predict what will happen if God's people sin and they're just doing their job. And maybe it was not a big deal to them because Jeremiah is the only prophet where it shows us a little bit of the internal emotional toll that being a prophet took on Jeremiah. They actually called him the weeping prophet. His empathy with and identification with the people to whom he had to bring bad news was profound. And it kind of helps because when somebody comes to you with bad news, it's sort of nice if they feel bad for you. It says in different passages in Jeremiah, Jeremiah cries out to God and says, my heart is faint. Since my people are crushed, I too am crushed. I mourn the horror that has been given to me. So this was somebody who suffered some mental anguish when he was doing his work. I think there's just a little piece for us to remember in our work. Dallas Willard says that your work is your primary place of discipleship. So how you live out your life in Christ shows up in really profound ways in your work. Years ago, I used to be a nurse for a brief period of time, and I was working with a patient named Mr. Bart. Mr. Bart was 90 years old, um, old time, long time ago, when you couldn't get an IV in a person, you would actually pull up the skin on their uh, knee, on their thighs, and insert six or eight inch long needles and run fluid in them that way. This is, I know, it's a long time ago. Just getting you ready for lunch. Um, And he was the first patient that I ever had that died. And I was working with a male nurse at the time who was helping me take care of Dr. Uh, Mr. Bart as he was dying and then another nurse breezed in and I think very well intended and she wasn't cruel but she just said you know this is not the first last person you're going to see die I was fighting back the tears she said you're going to have to get used to this and then she went out and Jeff the male nurse I was working with reached across and put his hand on Mr. Bart and said or not or tears can come to your eyes every time somebody dies it's okay your work will take a toll on you, and it's okay. And some, some of our work is as parents. That never takes a toll on you. That's super easy. Um, my husband, a number of years ago, did a series on families, and he started the first week off saying, what family in the Bible do you most want to emulate? 
He said, the answer better be absolutely none because there's not a single story of a family in the Bible that would be on the focus on the family's highlight of the month. (laughs) There's pain in lots of places in life and our work takes a toll on us. Uh, Jeremiah was faithful, but he was not successful. He did not get the response that other prophets got where God's people turned but that's not what he was called to. And faithfulness trumps success in God's eyes all the time. Second reflection I want to spend some time on. Uh, this story comes out a time of huge disruption, uncertainty, and fear. And we've been through something similar to that this last year, not just on the pandemic level, but on racial issues and political turbulence. But as soon as this is all over, you know it'll be something else. Life is not an up-and-to-the-right adventure. That part of the challenge of our lives is to seek God in the midst of suffering and fear and uncertainty when what we most want is clarity and comfort. A few years ago, before Billy Graham died, he admitted that he had spent too many years preaching the American dream instead of the kingdom of God. They're very different things. And honestly, the Bible is full of reminders that to follow Jesus is the way of the cross. John 21, when Jesus reinstitutes Peter and forgives him for denying him and says, feed my sheep. Lord, uh, do you love me, Peter? Yes, I do. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Stop asking me, God. I said I love you. And it says Peter was hurt because Jesus kept asking him. And then while Jesus had Peter's attention, he said, let me tell you one more thing. That when you were young, you got to go and do whatever you wanted. I tell you, when you're older, you will reach out your hands and someone will lead you to where you do not want to go. Oh man, sign me up for that. What? Someone will lead you to where you do not want to go. And like this story, we think that when we get clarity from God, we will obey. These people didn't. When Peter heard those words, do you remember the first thing he said? He swung around and looked at John behind him and said, what about him? And Peter committed the sin of comparison. And in the next passage, Jesus' anger at Peter for the sin of comparison is way stronger than the woman caught in adultery. Think about that for a while. Jesus says, what is that to you if I allow him to remain alive until I return? You follow me. This Peter is your story. You obey me. And sometimes in the middle of following Jesus, when we're looking for clarity and comfort and joy, um, we get suffering. And the question is, how do we find God? The third reflection in here is that the remnant asked for God's direction, but they were already committed to a comfortable choice. I think sometimes our prayers are not as honest as they should be. They're not as full of surrender as God wants them to be. They really are an attempt to impose our will on God. The other piece I want you to remember too in here is the remnant word. It's such an important word. God has always done his best work through small groups of people. Jesus came. He didn't speak about tsunamis or seismic shifts or great things. He talked about light and salt and yeast and seed. Why? Because the universe has been built upon a disproportionate impact of small things. 
and maybe what's happening now in the world and also in the Bay Area with this last year is churches are being whittled down to a remnant, to a small group that will listen to God and follow God. And just the idea of being really honest in our prayers with God, to say, this is what I want. It's the Gethsemane prayer. This is what I want, God. But nevertheless, your will be done. The next point is idolatry was the disaster. Idolatry is such a funky word, isn't it? You know what's interesting about the word idolatry is you automatically assume those were pagan foreign people that lived thousands of years ago. Maybe. Maybe none of us in this room have idols. Maybe not. Certainly we don't carve out out of wooden statues or metal or stone, but you and I have things that we put on shelves higher than God. And a lot of it's unconscious, I think. Because most of our idols are really good things that have become so big in our lives that they've squeezed God over into the corner where he becomes like a nice little pet you can visit, but not a power in your life. And certainly in the Bay Area, affluence and success, jobs, education, our own will, our families are all things that are capable of becoming idols in our lives. And the disaster that comes as a result of that. To constantly be asking ourselves the question, what does it mean for God to be the most important thing in my life? Not in a punitive way, but in a way that really believes he's that good. That's why he should occupy that position in my life. Um, When earlier in the passage... Uh, Jeremiah talked about idolatry and apostasy, where the big thing's apostasy was about pulling away from God. Isaiah 29 says that your hearts are far from me, but your mouths honor me with your lips. There's a big discrepancy between our insides and our outsides. And that's what happens when we're living in idolatry and we're living in apostasy. And what does it mean to come back together and integrate ourselves back with God on the top shelf in our lives, where everything else then falls in place and does not hold that desperate quality in our lives that it never was intended to hold. Two more things. Um, The next one is that blame and scapegoating became attempts to relieve the burden of wrong choices. Blame and scapegoating became attempts to relieve the burdens of wrong choices. I used to have a magnet on my refrigerator that said, I didn't say you did anything wrong, I said I was going to blame you. (laughs) I just need somebody to take the responsibility. And there is a long thread through scripture of the theme of scapegoating. That we are so afraid, incapable of holding our own sin and owning it. That we find other people and other circumstances to blame. And it's one of the biggest obstacles to intimacy with God. I didn't do it, it was her fault. Well, if he hadn't done that, I wouldn't have done that. There's a famous French philosopher, and I will butcher it. Some of you out here are going to be much smarter than I am on this, but it'll give you enough to Google it and look into it, named René Girard. And he was an atheist and a very bright guy, and he studied all the ancient cultures and their creation stories. And it was when he came across the Bible And he saw the creation story where instead of the gods creating human beings to serve them, this story was utterly different than any other story. It was that God created the garden to receive human beings and to serve them. And that intrigued him. And then this idea of scapegoating, which is present in every culture, 
he began to realize that in the pages of Scripture that Jesus, that God himself became the scapegoat for us. And he converted to Roman Catholicism because of this theme of scapegoating and the healthy way of doing it through God and not ourselves. But for us, the bigger issue is when I start to blame and find other people, it's almost always an avoidance for sitting still and quietly with what I've done wrong. And then the last thing that I, I hope you will leave with is that in all of this, hope never left the horizon. Never once. In all of Jeremiah's words, there was the promise of if you turn from this and if you listen to God, he will redeem you. He will build you up. He will be with you and show you compassion. He will never leave you. In Genesis chapter 3, right on the heels of Adam and Eve sinning, God immediately gives a plan of restoration in the form of the promise of Jesus. Jesus says in John 16 to his disciples, it is good for you that I go away because then the Holy Spirit can come. And in God's economy, hope is always on the horizon. You can't get away from it. It would be absolutely impossible because of the nature of who God is. And so for this last minute, I want to invite you to sit quietly in what you are most afraid of right now. For some of you, it's going to take the full minute to even admit that you're afraid. But for others of you, it will come more easily. I want you to sit in that and then just quietly imagine what might God want to say to me about that fear. 